Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Economic Innovator of the Year Awards for 2022. I'm Martin van der Weer, Business Editor of The Spectator, and it's my pleasure to introduce in this first of our podcast series this year's Northwest Region finalists from Manchester, where we lunched at the glittering Ivy Cafe, which, apart from its beautiful decor, also has rather loud background music. So you may hear a little of that on this podcast, as well as our voices. We met four regional finalists. Each had a roughly 15-minute slot to talk to us and answer questions from our panel of judges. So the four companies we met for this event were Ordo, which makes electric toothbrushes, Love Raw, which makes indulgent vegan chocolate, Better to Know, which is in the business of sexual health testing services, and Interact, which is all about energy efficiency in data centers and computer systems. So, as ever, an extraordinary range of businesses for our judges to assess in just a few minutes each, but that's the fun of these awards. Our panel of judges today were Steve Morris, who is a private equity and venture capital investor, Gabriel Feisch, an investor who one of whose companies, Transcend Packaging, in South Wales, was a former regional winner of our awards, and representing Investec, our sponsors, Richard Greenhalsh and Michelle White, now a veteran of these events, having done the whole tour with us. So, who did we hear from today? We'll start with Ordo in electric toothbrushes represented by Barty Walsh. It is addressing the problem that one in two of us, 50% of the population, has some sort of gum disease. We don't look after our teeth properly. Uh, oral uh, diseases are the eighth biggest set of diseases in the healthcare permanent, as it were. So it has, a, it has a, an important social and medical purpose, but it's out there to compete. Ordo is basically, it's a 21st century all care brand which was designed and started to challenge the big players in the industry. So as you'll probably know, you've either probably got an Orwell B or a Philips, they literally dominate the market globally. So I think it was about six months before COVID, we launched our dental partnership and we went from zero clinics to five, 600 clinics within the space of about six months, stocking and selling our products. The main reason that was such a big growth is because of our price point. So our product essentially sells for £50. It's the equivalent what Philips or Oral-B would sell for 100 to £200, depending on where it's being sold and the discount. And it's always sold at £50, no matter if it's on our website, if it's on a retailer, it's always sold at 50 unless we will do maybe one or two small discounts throughout the year. Dentists who sell the products at £50, and they know that Boots or uh, Argos are going to sell it at 50 so they're not being undercut. And we are now the third biggest electric toothbrush brand in the UK. So Philips, all be Philips and then us, to the point where we're actually taking market, we've taken market share from Philips in the top four retailers that we work with. So in terms of being a challenger brand, we're genuinely challenging them. Its toothbrushes are made in, in China. They're, they're a rather kind of stylish, colorful, 
design and they have claims to be, for example, better battery length, six to eight weeks of battery power, more sonic pulses and so on. But essentially they're out there to compete with the existing giants and disrupt a rather narrow market with only two large competitors in it. So I'm going to start by asking Gabriel what he thought. Great product. And, you know, I, I know the name of the prize has changed from disruptor to innovator, but, you know, this really does fall under the disruptor category in my mind. They are really going to disrupt the big boys. They're well-priced. It's a great-looking product. They're working on their sustainability aspect. They're fully cognizant of how that's going to affect customer feedback. And, yeah, I was really impressed and uh, already profitable and uh, with lots of a good solid base to grow from. Steve? I would echo what's been said because, in fact, if you look and feel and touch this product and you listen to the, the culture coming through in uh, Barry's presentation, they remind me a lot of a product called Harry's. It was a, a razor that started out as an, a, obviously an early stage company from some years ago. Packaging is very, very similar. They disrupted because of the price point and because they did exactly what they said they would do on the tin. And eventually, the, the 800 pound gorilla in that market, which was Gillette, yeah. acquired Harry's. And the Harry's brand continued to be a, a perceived competitive product to the Gillette product, but they're owned by the same company now. So is that disruptive? Yes, I think so. Um, is it scalable? Definitely. Is there space in the market? Yes. Lots of ticks and, and nods from me. Michelle? Thanks, Martin. Yeah, brilliant presentation from Barty and hats off to taking on the two big gorillas, as you say. I think the interesting points that haven't been mentioned so far, so that there's also a subscription model in there. So he talked about sort of the repeat delivery of new brush heads they're also branching out more into oral care with toothpaste and mouthwashes and things like that so lots of different strands there which were interesting and I just think massive opportunity internationally for a lower cost electric toothbrush you know we talked about some of those sort of developing countries where millions and millions of people are not using well maybe any kind of toothbrush but certainly not an electric toothbrush and the first one they buy isn't going to be the 250 pounds oral b option it could be the £50 auto option. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think the, sort of the aesthetic of the product certainly jumped out at me, at very sort of um, Apple-esque almost, but as you say, the simplicity of it, the beauty of it, the cleanliness of it. Chatting to Barty, it feels like this is a business that's in the foothills of its development. He talked about sort of branching out into razors, into hair dryers, things like that, but at that price point that will put him into the direct competition with the Dysons of this world. So very very interesting business and um, I think a product that hopefully deserves to succeed and, and push forward. Yeah and in the UK market I think he said that 60% of us still use old-fashioned manual toothbrushes and actually the electric toothbrush is much better for your mouth so there's enormous growth prospects so there we are electric toothbrush if if Apple produced an electric toothbrush this is what it would look like I think. Um, great okay our second guest today Rimi Tapa is the founder of Love Raw, which makes plant-based chocolate products. And it's grown now into a pretty substantial 
business which is out there competing with chocolate brands like Ferrero Rocher and Kinder Bueno and so on, but it's plant-based. It, it uses substances like hazelnut oil instead of dairy. We sampled some. It's great. It's lovely. It's sweet. It's delicious. Uh, and we very much enjoyed hearing her story. So Love Raw is the fastest growing plant-based chocolate brand in the UK. We make great tasting chocolate that just so happens to be plant-based. I went through a very hard time of a period of grief. I lost my dad and I started making plant-based snacks for my family and friends and they said it tasted incredible and it was just, you know, I thought this is what I need to do. I need to share my passion through these products onto consumers. I tried to set up a business in Spain. There was too much red tape. They didn't really support cottage industries. So I left behind my husband in Spain and I moved back to the UK to Altrincham, where I moved in with his parents and started making the bars in, in their kitchen. And it snowballed from there. So let's start again with Michelle on this one. Thank you. Yeah, great presentation and very emotional from Rimi on the, the origins of that. I thought some of the really interesting points were that she said when they've been talking to retailers, there's quite a push to put them in the sort of free-from aisle. And they've worked hard to say, no, we're, we're a mainstream product and we want to be alongside the Cadbury's, the, the Nestle and everyone else. We don't want to be seen as a sort of, yeah specialist one on a different aisle and they've just got a huge success in that regard she she told us that they're going to be in 1800 tesco stores from november in that mainstream aisle part of the meal deal all of that so amazing sort of move on for the company and i will leave it there i was going to talk about input cost pressures but maybe gabriel can talk about that <laughs> <laughs> gabriel over to you yeah i know well look i Firstly, it's a delicious product, I have to say. I'm really quite impressed. You know, blind tasting with a with a challenger Ferrero, you'd be hard pushed to tell the difference. Yeah, I think input costs and margin pressure was definitely going to be a bit of a hill to climb over the next year or so. But look, she's got the passion behind it. There's no doubt about it. It's a, it's a family business. If anyone's going to make that work, she will. So, you know, I wish her the best. I really do. I think it's... Uh, you know, personally, I think it's. Uh, I think Ferrero should buy her out. <laughs> Richard, I and mean, she certainly seems to tap into the zeitgeist, doesn't she? And it was interesting that comment around as you talked about the sort of the free from Ireland. It definitely feels to me that it's a, a series of products that that stand up on their on their own two feet, regardless of of what the sort of the underlying sort of recipes are. They were very, very tasty, and I think I think just in the world that we live in now that that desire for something that's a little bit different whilst being sort of familiarly comfortable or comfortably familiar is a great thing so yeah I think the story behind her is fantastic and just a, a really interesting really interesting story Steve yeah what a sexy product <laughs> what an evergreen market a market that will never become any smaller than it is mm. the market that she's in or the company's in is here to stay and it's here to grow. But how the magic has worked to use plant-based 
produce to, to create that taste is incredible. Personally, I think the business could run a long, long, long way before an acquisition. And the backstory that everyone else has already mentioned is, is one, one of the best I've heard, albeit emotional, but a great backstory and a great, a great story to tell. Can't see any drawbacks. I, I think another plus for the business is, is, is the founder's banking investment background, the finance mm. background, I think that's important because if private equity is required in the future then it's a great starting point to have someone in the business that understands it. So great product and a great business, yeah. Yeah, and I think she really communicated to us that she just loves running her business, you know, yeah. that, that it's transformed her life for the better as well as creating a very good business. So the next one, we moved into a completely different world. Better to Know is the name of the company with a numeral two in the middle, Better to Know, represented by its founder, Mike Asher. And this is the world's largest provider of sexual health testing services. So that means it's already quite a, a lot. It is a large business. It's um, 11 years from its founding and it's operating in 20 countries and it's filling a need for for patient choice for swift testing for you know everything from herpes to chlamydia to gonorrhea and all of those kind of ailments it is better than the nhs at confidentiality at opening hours all that kind of thing it's the flexibility that modern consumers want and it's clearly a highly efficient business it works with laboratories and clinics wherever it goes in different countries it's not yet in the US but it's looking at that but it's in it's in many other countries looking across certainly the UK the provision of sexual health services is dominated by the public sector uh, it's not the NHS as many people think it's uh, uh, local authorities who actually hold the budget for sexual health services and there are thousands of gum clinics genital urinary medicine clinics across the UK giving sexual health tests away for free but there are aspects to how they deliver their services which we felt we could do better so in the first instance patient choice is not there if you go to a gum clinic they will tell you what they're going to test you for and if you say I'd like a test for herpes simplex as well they'll say no uh, because that doesn't fall within our budget or our plans at the moment we work with about 5,000 clinics around the world we have people answering the telephones 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year if you've uh, been playing the field and you want to be tested for everything then we've got comprehensive panels like our platinum screen or our full screen or if you're specifically worried about a single infection or disease we can also test for those so the patient and the advisor will agree what tests are right for them our medical team then uh, review the results and we report those results to our patient confidentially and securely Richard, what did you think of that as a business? I think the key two phrases for me from this are the sort of the flexibility and the discretion that, that the business model provides an individual who requires those services. He alluded to during the conversation about the, the issues that surround the use of public health to, to get the results that people are looking for, the speed, the flexibility, and I said there's the discretion, which is probably the key one when you're looking at what is a pretty sensitive subject matter. So. Um, yeah, I think for me, it's, it should be a game changer in the markets within which it operates because of the nature of what it does. So you could possibly argue that the sort of the diagnostics and the testing may not be as groundbreaking, but actually 
that that broader service provision absolutely is. And so for me, yeah, really fascinating business. Steve? Uh, yeah, I mean, in, in, in the investment world, one of the views we form very quickly with a business is, is to decide whether it's an essential item or whether it's a nice to have item. And in my view, this is an essential item. So Mike wins the award in my view today for having the essential item and the business is clearly a success. You cannot have 12 million pounds of revenue and not, be, not have a successful story. All of that said, the bar is low because this is competing with local authorities, competitive offering. A local authority, as we all know, is all about cost control. It's all about managing to a budget. It manages everything from the bins to looking after people's health. So in my view, no disrespect to the business, but the bar is low. So to compare yourself with that is a great place to be. The business is disruptive. It's definitely, in my view, sustainable. And um, these two guys have got it sussed, so yeah. I guess the counter argument to that would be that Mike was very transparent in saying at the top of his presentation that their number one competitor really is certainly in the UK are the gum clinics that actually give sexual health tests away for free gum, sorry, being genital urinary medical clinics. So obviously competing with effectively a, a company that gives away the tests for free makes it somewhat difficult but yeah I mean obviously the fact that they are giving patients choice as Richard talked about and 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year is working and an amazing business that they've built as you've all said. Okay thank you very much well let's move on to our fourth entrant for today again in a very different area of high technology it's called Interact represented by Rich Kenny and I'm going to ask Gabriel, if I may, to introduce the subject and tell us what it does, because I think amongst the <laughs> judges, he's probably the one who understood it best. Crikey. Okay. Rich has a background in computer engineering and infrastructure design for data centers. He comes from the whole world of refreshing hardware for the big players like Cisco, HP, Ariba, all these kind of people. So what he's done is created a data set which is able to measure servers in places like data centers for data center providers or large business units which works out whether they're operating at their most efficient. And he's then able to tell whoever the client is, look, this particular server is not running at optimum efficiency, we should switch it out. Or this is a zombie server, we'll turn it off or whatever. And he can come up with a solution to a company that will essentially save them money, energy, efficiency, and on top of that, all the carbon that goes along with it, because as you rightly pointed out at the beginning of his presentation, you know, computer hardware and data centers represent about 3% of carbon emissions globally. So it's a really big deal. And I think what he's come across here is really quite, you know, it's a bit of a game changer, actually. I'm really very impressed. I think you know, once you actually get to understand what he's what he's achieved, and what he has in terms of his data, and that's the real value, because you know how he does it is open source, but the data isn't, is very very interesting indeed, and proper proper innovator, I think. I think if I understood it correctly, he's saying one of the one of the things they are telling the owners of data centers is you don't need to renew all your kit every two years, and behind that 
he has a very, very big claim, which is to have disproved Moore's law. Moore's law from the 1960s said that microchip technology would advance so fast that every two years it would sort of double in capacity and halve in, in size. Well, if, if that's not the case anymore and you can just get a really efficient performance out of the kit you've already got for much longer, that's an actually revolutionary concept. IT infrastructure is responsible for about 3% of the world's carbon. That's twice the aviation industry. And we look to reduce that by 65%. So if Interact was used by every data center and was used by every cloud organization in the world, we would probably reduce global carbon by the same as the entire aviation industry, or three times what the UK delivers in a single year. That's the environmental and carbon impact of what we do. We undertook a research project with the University of East London and Innovate UK. The aim of that project was to prove that refurbished hardware performs identical as new regards to performance. So we went out there to prove that, and we carried out thousands and thousands of benchmarks on equipment to do that. During that piece of work, Rabbi and I disproved a fundamental law of computing called Moore's Law. We disproved that fundamentally and published that in the IEEE in 2021. That was such world-changing knowledge that we actually opened the Spiceworks conference in America to 100,000 people, and the person that followed us was Steve Wozniak from Apple. So we handed the microphone over to the founder of Apple for him to talk after we were finished. That's the impact of discovery. In regards to what it means for the sector is that refreshing with new equipment every two years is no longer the most effective way, an environmentally effective way to run your business. It changes our concepts on cloud transformation, digital transformation and how we grow businesses. So what we do, we have all these industry benchmarks. We currently have 10 times more data than the combined knowledge of all the HPs, the Dells, the Cisco's, all the manufacturers in the world. A model that is now 97 to 99% accurate to predict total performance, total capability, energy efficiency and carbon effectiveness of any server across any generation in the last 30 years. What that means is you can run our system in any of your businesses and it will tell you how to more effectively generate the exact same compute power but up to 91% more efficiently on energy. Steve, what did you think? For me, it's, it's probably all of the other things. It's the no shareholders, the not-for-profit. It's the desire of the business to, to be all things to everybody in every business in every walk of life. And one of the questions that I put to Rich was, is there a risk that you try to boil the ocean? That you take on way, way, way too much to achieve something that's never been achieved without finding a niche, a mm. beachhead, a point to prove this because without being harsh it has not yet been proven in a corporate environment at scale. So Rich's response was very positive in that he said that he recognised that this potentially could be a downfall of the business but what he wanted to do in the first instance was, was to prove a model in the most efficient way and I think that until that's done for me the rest of it could be speculative mm -hmm. so I'm not a skeptic I'm actually a big fan and I think that as Gabriel has already said he's, he's already proven that there's a, a problem yeah, that, that sure. needs to be fixed because every building we can see around us has got servers running unnecessarily there's, there's no question of that and we're in the middle of a global energy crisis so you put the two together it makes sense so I'm, I'm a massive fan, but I think it needs, it needs a zero uh, focus at this time.
And we should say it's not exactly a not-for-profit business. It's actually under the umbrella of, subsidiary of, a bigger tech business called Tech Buyer. And it's taken a view that it can kind of offer this service at discounted prices. It doesn't need to rush to profit because it has, it has that umbrella over it. And it can develop relationships with some very big clients. He mentioned MasterCard and Amazon, for example. It's a very small business in turnover. It's only £200,000 turnover so far. But what we learned was it's a kind of, it's a really groundbreaking idea. Yeah, I mean, completely mind-blowing for me. I'm not sure how much I understood what he was saying. But in terms of the innovation, and Gabriel talked about that, I mean, he talked about one of the big banks that they're engaged with who were going through a process of deciding whether they work with them, just as we would at Investec, and ran a RFQ process where they asked their, you know, the vendors and the internal team to basically benchmark them against two other companies, as you always would, to then decide, right, yes, that's the one we'll work with, and we're happy with that. And the company came back and said, there's actually no one else we can compare this to. This literally doesn't exist before now, and there's no one else doing it. So certainly a true innovator. Last comment from Richard. Yeah, I think I think for me, what sort of struck me was the, the sort of the, the mismatch between the humility of him as an individual mm. and the potential behind what it what it was that they were offering. As I said, I didn't understand all of it because it was it's pretty complex. But if if the numbers that he was talking around come to pass, then it I guess it genuinely could be game changing. And to come back to Stephen's point about sort of where we are at the moment in the world with a with an energy crisis. It's exactly the sort of thing that we should be focusing on. So for me, a, yeah, a really, really fascinating story. So there we are. That's our four finalists for the Northwest region that we've met in Manchester today, as you'll have gathered. Sometimes we hear just really lovely personal entrepreneurial stories. Sometimes we encounter ideas that seem to have the potential to change the world. So it's a fascinating process for us. We've now met 31 out of the 176 entrants for this year. So that's been a marathon trek around the UK for us, but we thoroughly enjoyed it. We hope you've enjoyed our podcasts and do stay with us to hear who's won the awards when we come to our gala event on the 10th of November. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. So that concludes our podcast series for our regional finalists. Do follow the awards on the Innovator section of the Spectator website to find out who the final winners are. That'll all be up there in November. At the end of October, the judges will get together for a roundtable with Andrew Neal and we'll be picking the winners. So that will be six regional winners, one overall winner and one winner in the special category of sustainability. So stay with us and find out who wins. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.